Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him or over and over. Jesus, Jesus, my sweet Jesus, giving honor and glory to God, who is the head of my life. You'll have to forgive me if I take a moment just to take mental snapshots of this moment. You have no idea that when I had no idea when I was 12 years old, when I began to sense the call of God upon my life to be a pastor, that I would be standing in this place on this day speaking before you. And so you have to forgive me if I'm a little bit happy today. There was a couple times I almost got up and shouted, but I, I didn't want you to think badly on my first day. I'll save that for another time. Is that all right? Now, a couple of housekeeping things. I, I want to acknowledge my beautiful, my lovely, my gorgeous wife. She's the sunshine of my life. My baby doll. My boo thing. And let me tell you, I'm so glad that God brought her into my life. I love her dearly. And let me tell you, there are two things I want to share with you. There's one reason why I married her, and there's one reason I did not marry her. The first is I married her because I love her. And the reason I did not, or one reason I did not marry her is, did I say that correctly? One reason why I would not have married her. That's, that's not correct, is it? I, I'm trying to get my English right this morning. What I'm trying to say is I didn't want an associate pastor as my wife. Are you hearing me today? She is not my associate pastor. She's my wife. And she's been called by God to love me. She's been called by God to support me. And anything that's left over from the goodness of her heart is meant for you. But she was called to love who? Yeah, that, that's right. I just want to get that out there right out the gate. Is that all right? Now, I, there's another thing I want to say. I, I love technology. It is a wonderful thing. It's extremely convenient. And I love my cell phone. And I want to give you my cell phone number, but I want to give you some instructions regarding it first. Uh, there is a, uh, now I want you to know out the gate that I'm available anytime you want to call. I want you to know that and that it is my pleasure to serve you. But I also want to let you know that I've taken some time management courses and one of the downsides of having a cell phone is that people can reach you at any time, any place, no matter what you're doing. And they say one of the greatest uh, hindrances to time management is answering your cell phone. So I just want to let you know that if you called me, please leave a message that I have a set time in my day where I will return phone calls. That way I can continue to minister and however the Lord's calling me in that moment, I can stay focused. Is that all right? Is that all right? All right. So just, just remember that just leave a message and I'll get back to you at my earliest convenience. Amen? Amen. One other thing that I want to do as housekeeping is that um, Mondays are my day off. 
Mondays are my day off. And so unless there's an emergency, you will not see me on Monday. Is that all right? That's all right. That's, that's time for my wife and I to reconnect. I want you to know that my first church is my wife. And I plan on staying married for a long time. Is that all right? Long after you and I part, I still want to be with my wife. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now that we got the housekeeping items out of the way, I just want to call out to God in a moment and ask him to be with us. But I have a tradition that I like to do when I preach. And that tradition is simply this. For all the children, those who are 12 years old and under, I want you to take out a sheet of paper. For I have an assignment for you during the sermon. I want you to take out a sheet of paper, and I want you to count how many times in the sermon I say the word, the name, Jesus. The name, Jesus. Once you take out that sheet of paper, I want you to write your name atop that sheet of paper. I want you to count how many times I say the name Jesus. I want you to hand it to me at the door on the way out. And if you get the correct number, there will be a prize awaiting you next week. You'll see my wife and she will have a prize awaiting you next week. For those who are 12 years old and under, what name are you listening for? I heard like one or two people say it. What name are you listening for? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. I see the ushers passing out a sheet of paper. Now give them a moment. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to Thee. Why don't you sing that with me all over the building? I need Thee. Oh, I need Thee. Every hour I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I Father God, in the name of Jesus, coming to you now, seeking your presence as we open your word. We're praying right now that your spirit might fall afresh in this place. Anoint me from the head of the crown of my head to the soles of my feet, Father, from fingertip to fingertip. Be with this stammering tongue and help me to speak the word of God clearly. I pray right now that you will be with the listeners, that their hearts might be open. And the ears attentive to the word that you have for us today. I pray, Father God, that your word will not return into you void, but will accomplish that for which you sent it. This is my prayer. For Christ's sake, loving you always. Amen. Amen. 
and amen. Just as a quick note, for this first quarter of 2013, we will be dealing with that special friend of mine. We'll be dealing with Jesus himself for this first quarter. I thought we'd start with the most important person in the Bible and take another look. I know that most of us know Jesus. But I want to take another look at this man and maybe pull out some things from Scripture that we might not have known about him. And so I've entitled these remarks today, Who Do You Say I Am? Who do you say I am? I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, but it seems that each year around Christmas and Easter, the leading newspapers and magazines run articles about Jesus. Each year, they trot out leading experts from these Ivy League institutions like Harvard and Princeton, and they comment on who Jesus was and who, who he is to us today. I don't usually read what they write because most of these so-called biblical scholars at Ivy League institutions have a particular slant on their scholarship. They're part of a school of thought that looks down their nose at those they consider to have antiquated beliefs in the Bible. They're condescending when they call other people's faith superstitions. And they sneer at the thought of you believing in old world myths. I don't usually read what they write. They seem to take delight in raising doubts in the minds of their students and think skepticism is a virtue that should be enjoyed by the truly enlightened of the world. I say I don't usually read what they write. However, against my better judgment, I recently read an article in Newsweek by a religion professor that cast doubt upon the whole Christmas story. I mean, he lampooned the virgin birth and questioned the historicity of the census that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. He mocked the genealogies of Jesus as inconsistent and cast doubt upon the idea that Magi could follow a star. Yet, surprisingly, he made an argument that Jesus' story was important for theological reasons. While he didn't think there was any historical truth to Jesus' stories, he did think there were some theological truths. You see, to him, Jesus was a great teacher, a great rabbi that had, had great influence over the lives of men. He thought of Jesus as a moral revolutionary. A man whose teachings had taken the entire nations in different directions. This man had great theological authority. And although he didn't believe in the historical accounts of Jesus, he thought there was some theological truths to be gleaned. There are many opinions about who Jesus is. For some Jewish friends of mine, he's a misunderstood Pharisee. Yes. From some Muslims, he's just a prophet. For some atheists, he's just a figment of someone's imagination. And with all these voices out there that are questioning Jesus' identity, it got me to wondering, who is Jesus to you and me? Who do we say Jesus is? 
If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew, the 16th chapter. What book did I say? Matthew, the 16th chapter, where we had our scripture reading. I'm reading from the New International Version this morning. Matthew, the 16th chapter. We begin reading in verse 13. Matthew, the 16th chapter. Beginning in verse 13. It is written, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Can you hear them? Listen to the raucous chatter of a huddled group of young men as they stroll down that dusty road. In the background, you can almost hear the soothing sounds of a bubbling spring that cascades from a nearby cave in Caesarea Philippi. It's gorgeous there. It's beautiful. It's green all around. It is breathtaking. It's just loud enough. This bubbling brook is just loud enough to drown out the gentle thud of their sandaled feet as they walk along the path. Can you see them? Their hands are gesturing wildly as they attempt to outshout one another because they're in a debate about some theological conundrum, some enigma, some problem that Jesus had posed to them, and they're trying to figure it out. Their expressive faces are hot with passion as they each interrupt one another, trying to make some salient point. And just then, the young rabbi from Nazareth, their leader, their master, joins up with this group of disciples after spending some quality time in prayer and asked them a question as though it had been percolating around in his mind for a while. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? The disciples had spent hours among the crowds that usually followed Jesus. They had heard what had been whispered about him, and they say in verse 14 of chapter 16 of Matthew, they say in verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. There were many theories as to who Jesus was, but the crowds weren't one of his disciples. They didn't follow Jesus everywhere he went. They hadn't gasped with wonder at all his miracles. They hadn't sat in rapture, transfixed by all of his sermons. They hadn't journeyed with him day in and day out to mark his every expression, to copy his every tone of voice, nor mimic his every turn of phrase. Only his disciples had been there. And so Jesus looks them square in the eye and says in verse 15, but who, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Forget about the crowds. Forget about what they think. They don't know me like you do. I want to know, but who do you say I am? And Peter, I like Peter. Peter, speaking up for the rest of the disciples, responds in verse 16, saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And listen to how Jesus responds. He says in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Oh man, he got it right. Peter finally got one right. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that whenever Jesus asked the disciples a question, they usually got it wrong? When Jesus asked them to provide food for the crowds, they got the answer wrong. 
When Jesus told them to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, the disciples got the answer wrong. And when James and John tried to call down fire upon the people who had rejected Jesus, the disciples got the answer wrong. But this time, this time Peter gets it right. This time Peter gives the correct answer and Jesus pronounces a blessing on him. Not only that, but he goes on in verse 18 to say, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I could almost see Peter with his chest stuck out, can't you? I mean, get this, Peter wasn't even his real name. His name was actually Simon. But Jesus was fond of giving nicknames to his disciples, and he gave one to Simon. He called him Peter, which literally, literally means stone or pebble. So in other words, Jesus was calling him Rocky. Yeah, I like that. He calls him Rocky, and, and he says uh, uh, to Rocky, he says, I call you Rocky for a reason. It's upon this boulder of a declaration, this rock, this immovable realization that I am going to build my church. Peter got it right. And can you see his broad smile? Can you see him wink at the other disciples as if to say, look at me. I'm shining, man. But then something unexpected happens in verse 21. The word of God says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. He must be what? And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Um, wait a second. Did I read that right? Did Jesus just say he was going to be killed? It, it doesn't make sense. You see, in verse 18, Jesus had just made this triumphal statement saying that the gates of hell would not prevail against him. And then he turns around and says, but I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be put to death. Something's not adding up, Jesus. There seems to be a contradiction. You said that death would not have control over you, that it would not prevail. And yet you say you're going to Jerusalem to die. It doesn't make sense. And Peter, on a roll, quickly caught this contradiction and smelling himself, as they say, he pulls Jesus aside in verse 22 and says, never, Lord. Ah, Yeah, yeah, the Bible says he tried to rebuke Jesus. It says, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And then listen to how Jesus responds to Peter. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me what? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. Satan? Really? I mean, this is the same Peter who a few verses ago, Jesus was talking about, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This is the same Peter that Jesus had just declared flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. This is the same Peter that just a few verses says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Same Peter. But now Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. What's going on? It changed so fast, I got whiplash. Is this an overreaction from Jesus? How could his boy Rocky be called Satan? 
I mean, I could understand Jesus calling Peter Satan if Peter had rebuked Jesus out of some evil intention. I could understand Jesus calling Peter Satan if Peter had been trying to manipulate Jesus somehow. I could understand Jesus calling Peter Satan if Peter was trying to get one over on Jesus. But Peter only said what he said because of his love for Jesus. He was being a true friend. I mean, what friend wants to see their friend, their best friend, mocked and beaten and spat upon and crucified? What friend would want that for them? Peter was just saying that which came naturally, what a good friend would say. Peter was loyal to a fault to Jesus. When Jesus would later say everyone would forsake him, Peter was the first to say, not I, Lord. I'll never forsake you. And unless you forget, Peter meant every word. That when they came for Jesus, it was Peter who pulled his sword and started to fight with them. If they were going to get at Jesus, they were going to have to go through Peter. Yeah, yeah. Peter was that guy. He's the one you want with you in a fight. Peter was that guy. He was Jesus' dude. That was his road dog. His ace boom coon. His bosom buzzy buddy. That was Peter. And Peter was ready to, to ride and die with Jesus. He was going to go all the way. And Peter was just speaking what his heart felt. He loved Jesus. And we know, we know that he was at cross purposes with the will of God. But he was doing it out of love. I mean, haven't you ever done the wrong thing for the right reasons? And shouldn't you get credit for having the right reasons? And isn't it strange that it was Peter's love for his master that put him at cross purposes with God's will. It was love. You would think that you could not go wrong with love. But as Al Green has said in his lover anthem, Love and Happiness, love will make you do right. Love will make you do wrong. Make you come home early. You don't know nothing about that. I. Y'all good church folk. Let me move on. Let me move on. Peter was just trying to be good friends with Jesus. But that's what's still so disturbing about it all. You see, Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He just wasn't ready for the type of Messiah that Jesus was. Oh, you didn't get that. Let me say it again. I said, Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He just wasn't ready for the type of Messiah that Jesus was. During the time of Jesus, the Jews were divided over what the Messiah would be like. In fact, the Jews were actually looking for three different Messiahs. Did you know that? They were looking for three different Messiahs. One group believed that the Messiah would be a great teacher who would teach the word of God properly. They based this on the prophecy of Isaiah 11, which says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. They were looking for a great teacher. Another group believed that the Messiah would be an anointed high priest who would revolutionize worship in the temple based on the prophecy in Malachi 3, which says he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, those are the priests, and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord an offering in righteousness. They were looking for a great high priest. 
But the most popular version of the Messiah, the one that Peter probably believed in, was that the Messiah would come as a conquering king who would establish Israel as a sole superpower on earth. This hope was based on prophecies like Jeremiah 23, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king. He will reign as what? And act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. There were whole armies of freedom fighters who were just waiting for Jesus to give the order. They would strap on their sword and go to battle for Jesus. They were looking for a king. And although Peter believed Jesus was the Messiah, he was mistaken as to what type of Messiah Jesus would be. It was incomprehensible to Peter that Jesus would ever go down in disgrace and humiliation. Incomprehensible to Peter that he would be beaten and mocked and finally executed like a common criminal. This was not the Messiah Peter had signed up for. He knew Jesus was the Messiah. He just wasn't ready for the type of Messiah Jesus was. And it occurred to me that Peter is not the only one. For most of us, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The anointed one, the Christ. We concur with Peter. We say that Jesus is the son of God, the son of the living God. We love him. We worship him. We adore him. We extol him. We lift him up. We exalt him. We are fans of Jesus. But I wonder if we, just like Peter, worship a Messiah of our own making. We know that Jesus is the Messiah, but do we know the type of Messiah that Jesus actually is? Hmm. We have various versions of who Jesus is. For some people, when they think of Jesus, they think of that portrait of him with the, the hippie locks and the full beard. You know the one I'm talking about with the little cleft in the chin. When they think of Jesus, they think of Kool-Aid and sugar cookies and gold stars for attendance. They see Jesus as some sort of celestial Mr. Rogers from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood who pats little children on their heads and dishes out kindly advice like be kind and love your mommy and daddy. When we think of Jesus, some of us, we, we think of somebody who speaks, speaks in the words of that great American poet. Uh, he just wants everybody to get along. But that's not the only picture of Jesus. When some people think of Jesus, they, they talk about him as though he were their secret lover. Yeah, yeah. They talk about him being held in his arms and rocked into rest. They sing songs about him like, he touched me. Oh, he touched me. Know what joy fills my soul. They talk about him like he's their secret lover. They talk about him like he's an R&B singer down on one knee just saying, baby, baby, please, baby, please love me. They picture him as a hopeless romantic who is fond of the grand gestures of love. Some people. Some people think of Jesus. When they think of Jesus, they picture someone with a, as a pickled-faced taskmaster who demands perfection. He sits high upon a throne looking down his long nose at us, and he commands, no, demands that we reach his high standard in order to satisfy him. He suffers no fools and takes no prisoners. He's got a long measuring stick in his hand, and he's really ready to whop you over the head anytime you get out of line. Some people's picture Jesus that way. 
And while there is some truth to each of these pictures, I wonder if we worship a Messiah of our own making. Like Peter, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but are we sure we know the type of Messiah Jesus actually is? And make no mistake, the type of Messiah we think Jesus is makes a difference in how we live our Christianity. It's the difference between blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, and get thee behind me, Satan. It's the difference between flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, and you do not have in mind the things of God. It's the difference between Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and the response of depart from me, I never knew you. It's the difference between life and death. Heaven and hell, happiness and despair. And I hear Jesus ask again, who do you say I am? God has not left us to our own misunderstandings. He has not left us to remake Jesus in any image we desire. If you want a true picture of Jesus, Jesus says this in verse 24 of the same chapter. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, the real me, the genuine me, if anyone would come after me, he gives this prescription, three prescriptions. He must deny himself. He must do what? He must take up his cross. He must do what? And he must follow me. He must do what else? Three things that Jesus says you must do. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If you want to be my disciple, if you want the real deal, the genuine article, you've got to do three things. And let's take them one at a time. Those three things, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. Self-denial is not a popular concept today. Today, everybody's trying to keep it real or keep it 100. Everybody's trying to do me. We're trying to do what comes naturally and follow our own hearts. Yet Jesus says that if you want to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself. That means sometimes God is going to ask us to do things that we just don't want to do. Can I be real about it for a moment? Sometimes he's asking us to do things that just are unnatural for us. That left up to our own devices, we would never choose for ourselves. That's what it means for self-denial. In other words, if your picture of God never requires you to sacrifice anything, to give up anything that you really like. Maybe you've got a false picture of God. Maybe your picture of Jesus needs to expand just a little bit. Maybe you need to spend a little time in the word with the Jesus who says you must deny yourself. And let's be real, self-denial is not easy. When God asks you to give up something that is quintessentially you, that is as much a part of you as the color of your eyes or the timbre of your voice, when Jesus, when Jesus lays his hands on that and says, you've got to give even that up, that's not easy. Self-denial is no joke. And I don't know what it is, that thing that God has placed in your life that he's calling you to let go of. I don't know what it is, but you know what it is. And, and for each and every one of us, it's a struggle. It's a hand-to-hand -hand battle with that thing that God is asking us to do. Maybe, maybe it's when God asks you to bite your tongue. When everything in you wants to just go off on some knuckle-headed, good-for-nothing, loud-mouth hater. Jesus says, deny yourself. 
Maybe it's when you know you're going to be in a heap of trouble with your parents because you can't tell them the truth of where you were last night. Jesus says, deny yourself. Or maybe it's like me. Can I confess for a moment? I hear confession's good for the soul. I am naturally a reserved person. I'm naturally relatively quiet. My wife can tell you that there are days where I will not say more than a few words all day long. I'm just naturally shy. A little awkward in social situations, that's just me. I don't think there's anything sinful about that. Yet in following Jesus, he called me into the ministry which is a people profession. That's an odd place for an introvert. And if I'm honest, there are times, there are days where I just don't want to talk. It might seem strange to you. Maybe you're naturally outgoing. Maybe you've got the gift of gab. Maybe you draw energy from being around people, but that's just not me. And so when Jesus speaks to me, he says, if you really want to come after me, if you want to do my will, you have got to deny yourself. He says, you've got to open up when you'd rather be closed off. You've got to engage when you'd rather have your nose in a book. You've got to talk to people when you'd rather be silent. I'm just telling the truth today. Can I tell them myself? And there are times when I'm ready to complain. There are times where I want to shake my fist in God's face and say, I don't want to do that today. That's, I just don't feel like it today. And then God reminds me that he had to deny himself for me. Yeah, yeah. He reminds me that on that night in Gethsemane, beneath the full Passover moon, Jesus, in great agony with tears in his throat and sweat on his brow, cried out, I don't want to go through with it. I don't want to go to Calvary. But in the midst of his depression, he still mustered the words, but not my will, but thy will be done. And I figure if Jesus could deny himself for me, then the least I could do is deny myself for him. Is that all right? And to every aspiring disciple that's worth their salt, Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. And I ask you again, who do you say Jesus is? But he goes on, not only must you deny yourself, but Jesus says you must take up your cross. Now, anyone who heard this during Jesus' day knew that if you took up your cross, the only place you were going was to be crucified. You don't pick up a cross otherwise. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to voluntarily be willing to give your entire life to me. He expands on it in verse 25. He says, in verse 25, the same chapter, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Verse 26, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world? yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? My question for you today is, are you willing to give up your life for him? He says, you've got to be all in. You've got to be willing to go all the way. You've got to be willing to hold nothing back. Being Jesus' disciple is like being pregnant. You either are or you aren't. You can't be a little bit pregnant. You can't be kind of pregnant. Either you are or you aren't. And the word of God tells us that there is no such thing as a halfway Christian. 
Either you're all in or you're not in at all. There's no middle ground, the word of God tells us. And in order for transformation of our lives to be complete, he's got to have access to all of our lives. He's got to have access to your bank account, access to how you treat your spouse, access to how you treat your parents. He's got to have access to every aspect of your life if you're going to be his disciple. He's got to have access to where you work and access to the clothes you wear and access to the food you eat and access to the books you read and access to the people you date and access to the life you live. He's got to have all of you or he'll have none of you. And I wonder today, who does your life say Jesus is? And finally, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And this last point is so important. You and I will never know the real Jesus until we step out and follow him for ourselves. Amen. Knowing the real Jesus can't be taught in a classroom somewhere. It can't be preached from the pulpit. It can't be learned in a book, even the Bible. You see, the Bible is designed to point you to Jesus. But you have got to be the one to step out and actually make a relationship with Jesus. It requires you to step out on faith. Just knowing about the Bible doesn't mean you know Jesus. You can know all the facts of Jesus' life. That doesn't mean you know Jesus. Those scholars at Harvard and Princeton know about Jesus. But until they reach out their hands in faith, they will never know Jesus. And so you've got to triumph for yourself. Let me tell you about my own journey in following Jesus. I shall never forget at the tender age of eight, sitting in a church similar to this one, listening to an evangelist preach the gospel. I don't remember the sermon at all. All I remember is that there was a projection on the screen behind him of this great red dragon. He must have been preaching from Revelation chapter 12. And with outstretched hands, he was calling us to give our lives to the Lord Jesus. And there I was in my pew, a young eight-year-old, listening to the words of the preacher, and something stirred within me. There was a yearning. I can't explain it. I just knew I had to make a decision for Jesus Christ. And I was terrified to come down for the altar call. So there in my pew, I called upon Jesus, and I, and I called out on his name, and I, I said, Lord, come into my life. And in that moment, God heard the prayer of a child. God was no longer just my daddy's God. It was no longer my mommy's God. He became my God. I wish I could say to you that from that day on, following Jesus was a cakewalk. I wish I could say that no shadows ever crossed my path and no clouds ever darkened my skies. No sorrows ever touched my heart. I wish I could tell you. That I never turned down some blind alley somewhere and veered off course. I wish I could tell you following Jesus was a straight and simple path, but it wasn't for me. The truth is, I found Jesus to be most precious when he was a guide in dark places. So now I can tell you from my own experience, I found Jesus to be an employer when I didn't have a job. I found Jesus to be a matchmaker when I didn't have a spouse. I'm just talking about what I found. I found Jesus to be a provider when I didn't have a dime. I found Jesus to be a protector when I almost drowned. 
I found Jesus to be my hope when I was hopeless. I found Jesus to be my strong tower when I was afraid. I found Jesus to be my hero when I was passionless. I found Jesus to be my friend when I was lonely. I found Jesus to be my savior when I was guilty. I found Jesus to be my Lord when I was directionless. I found Jesus to be my God when I needed someone to believe in. I'm not telling you what I heard somewhere. I'm not telling you what I was told. I'm telling you what I've experienced for myself. And even though I might be shy, even though I might be reserved at times, even though I might be quiet, I found that when it comes to talking about Jesus, my Jesus, sweet Jesus, when it comes to talking about my friend, that when I look at the word of God, I found like Jeremiah, I just can't hold my peace. Yeah, I've tried. I've tried, but his word has gotten a hold of me and it won't turn me loose. I said his word is like a fire that's been shut up in my bones. And I got to tell somebody about Jesus. I said I got to tell somebody about my Jesus. I can't keep it to myself, shy though I may be. I got to tell somebody. Oh, I'm not preaching yet. I just got a little happy there for a moment. You have to forgive me. I hear Jesus saying again, who do you say I am? Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But follow you where, Jesus? To Calvary? To death? To a tomb? Is that all you're offering? Follow you where, Jesus? With death as our only destination, it seems as though the gates of hell will win. And that is the way it must have seen on that fateful Friday. Evil men and evil angels conspired together to put a stop to the young rabbi from Galilee. And it must have seemed like the gates of hell were winning when one of Jesus' own disciples led a mob to arrest him in an olive grove outside of Jerusalem. Hold your breath as the kiss of death is placed upon his bearded cheek and stare in disbelief as they bind his hands like a thief and lead him away to his disciples' grief. It must have seemed like the gates of hell were winning when he was cold-cocked before Caiaphas and pushed and pulled before Pilate and harassed and harangued before Herod. It must have seemed like the gates of hell were winning when they beat him until he bled and pressed a crown of thorns upon his head and he was given Barabbas's cross instead. It must have seemed like the gates of hell were winning when they raised his cross to the sky and mocked him as they watched him die and from that center cross they heard that mournful sigh. It must have seemed like the gates of hell were winning when they laid him in a borrowed grave and rolled a stone over the mouth of that cave and though he healed others, himself he could not save. It must have seemed as though the gates of hell were winning. But I hear Jesus say again, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Oh, you didn't hear me. I said the gates of hell will not prevail. I've got good news today. Good news. He gave his life on Friday, laid in a tomb on Saturday, but early Sunday morning, 
Jesus wiped the death dew from his eyes and uh, shook loose the grave clothes and Jesus got up. I, I said Jesus got up and cried over the tomb. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I've got good news today. Good news. You may have to deny yourself down here. You may have to carry your cross down here. You may have to go through a few tests down here. You might have to go through a few trials down here. You might have to persevere down here. You might have persecutions down here. You might have to endure hell in your house and hell at your work and hell at your school and hell in your bank account and hell in your health and hell in your church and hell all around you become hell or high water. I hear again Jesus say the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of God. The gates of hell will not prevail. Are you the church of God? So if you want victory over the gates of hell today, you know what you must do. You must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow after Jesus. For we know where that ends. That he's sitting at the right hand of God. And he says, where I am. He says, where I am, there you will be also. I've got good news. His grace is sufficient for you today. If you make up your mind today to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after Jesus. Who believes the word of God today? Who believes? Who believes? Who believes? At this time, I'm going to invite my aunt to come and sing for us, and then I'm going to come back and ask you a few questions. presence 
is so near that name is Jesus how I love him the one who gave his life for me because of love so unconditional I will have life eternal distance. He'd gotten lost in the desert and soon his car had run out of gas and he had no other way to get to the nearest town and so he got out of his car and he began to travel on foot. He thought perhaps it would only be a few miles down the road but a few miles turned into a few more and a few more and a few more. There was nothing but a bleak landscape all around him. The sun was beating upon his brow and he was sweating profusely and his mouth was parched and dry. He knew he couldn't go much longer like this. He had to find some water somewhere or he was going to die. As his strength began to wane and his steps became more labored as he walked, 
He saw upon the horizon what looked like a shack. He wasn't sure, for you see, you know, on the horizon it seemed like a mirage, those grainy li lines of heat emanating from the desert sands, maybe playing tricks with his mind. But as he marched on, step by step, he found this run-down shack sitting there. He opened the door and looked inside, and he wanted to know if there was anybody there, and he called out, but the place had been abandoned for many years, it seemed. As he looked around the place, he tried to find something to drink and something to eat, and there was nothing there. And finally, he walked out into the yard, and there he saw a jug filled with water. It was sitting next to a pump right there on the ground, and there was a note beside it. This note said, if you take this water and you pour it into the pump to prime the pump, you will have as much water as your heart's content. But you must pour all of the water into the pump. This thirsty man looked at this note and was beginning to wrestle with this dilemma. I mean, right in front of him was a jug of water. He could drink it right now. He could have that. But then he thought, who knows when the next amount of water would come his way. Or he could do as the note said and pour every last drop into this pump and just hope that the well hadn't run dry. He was conflicted. What should he do? What would you have done? Well, this man decided to take a try. And he took that jug of water and he began to pour it into the pump. And then he began to grab the handle and he began to, to work that handle on the pump. And nothing seemed to come out. He thought maybe, maybe, maybe he had done the wrong thing. And, and he began to continue to push, push on that handle and pump and pump and pump and nothing was coming out. He was terrified that his only chance of getting water, he had poured away. He continued to pump and pump and pump and eventually water began to come from that pump. And, and it filled up the jug and it overflowed. He had more water than he knew what to do with. In fact, he had water to bathe in and water to drink. And he filled all the jugs he could find in that abandoned place and filled them up with water. And there was still water coming up from the well. And then he decided to refill that jug and place it beside the pump. He replaced that note and he placed it beside it and, and underneath the instructions that said to give all the water, he wrote, I've tried it for myself. It works. You'll see. Today, I, I'm calling to you from the words of scripture, from the words of Jesus himself. He says, if any man wants to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow. You've got to be all in. You've got to pour it all in. That's the only way you will know for yourself that what he said is true. I'd invite you to stand with me right where you are. Just stand right where you are. Every head is bowed. Every eye closed. I have three appeals, just three appeals from the word of God. 